The Back Seat by Frank M. O'Brien From The Cavalier, September 21, 1912 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman The Back Seat by Frank M. O'Brien when I tell you that I never saw young Mr. Gerald Forbish in his original form, you may wonder that I should attempt to write of him on matters so strictly personal. Bear with me patiently. I was blind at the time. My rigid nerve had developed Charlie Horse, and was not putting the optics over the plate. My doctor gave it a long name, emptied the Arctic Ocean drop by drop into my beautiful blue eyes, and put on a bandage. When he had pinned the far end of my optic shroud, he told me that I would be blind for two weeks. Meanwhile, he advised, have all the fun you can. Ball games, I suggested, and visiting the Metropolitan Museum? Neither, he said, nor aviation meets, nor pantomimes. We have no pantomimes in America, I replied. You must have read about them in that holiday number of the graphic which has been on your waiting-room table since my mother brought me here with whooping cough as far as aviation meets are concerned i can go to the field and hear the bones crack when they fall can't i mm, too racking on the nerve he decided try automobiling unless you have learned to play the piano in the dark good day and keep the bandage on as i could not play the piano at all even were all the unarrived constellations beaming upon it, and as I had no motor-car, nor the means of getting one, I was sad as I went home on the arm of a messenger-boy, who was only forty-five years old, and who seemed to feed a sporting fancy in letting me miss taxicabs by the length of a butcher's lead pencil. The angels heard my prayer, and the next morning Mr. Peter Forbush called me up. The telephone is a joy to the blind, Come motoring with us today, said Mr. Forbush. I want you to see our new car, and our son Gerald, just home from college. I explained that I couldn't see either of them, but that I would be proud to listen to both. The car, said Mr. Forbush, is absolutely silent. So I went to their house. The Forbishes condoled with me about my eyes, and Mrs. Forbush told me a soothing story about a friend who had had eye trouble which she considered just like mine, and who had been jollied along for years by the doctors, who told him each week that he would be able to see the following week. But, of course, it was all a kind lie, and... Gerald came in, and I was introduced. He spoke perfect Harvard, and his hand was clammy, it seemed to me. But the blind, like the deformed, I reflected, are always given to prejudice. The car came to the door, and we sped away. I sat in the wide, soft back seat with Mr. Forbush on my right and Mrs. Forbush on my left. Gerald, I fancied, was sharing the front of the car with the chauffeur. We entered a park gate at an acute angle, and I could feel the curb take three dollars and thirty-eight cents worth of rubber off a rear shoe. Your chauffeur, I commended, is a bit, uh, uh, snappy, isn't he? We left our regular driver at home, you know, said Mrs. Forbush. Gerald is driving. 
My forehead became like Gerald's hand. I am a fatalist, but I do not believe in putting pepper in fate's beer. Blondine was blindfolded, I admit, but he had a balancing pole, and no Harvard undergraduate was allowed on the wire with him. Besides, he had a nice, soft Niagara gorge to fall into. Not a mess of telegraph poles, iron fences, or exploding gasoline tanks. Have no fear with Gerald at the wheel, said Mr. Forbush, whispering, lest Gerald hear him. He used the tone of that inspiring song, My Dad's an Engineer, which, if I recall rightly, was contemporaneous with The Baggage Coach Ahead. Somewhere in a park a band was playing Casey Jones, with staccato on the bars. We're going to reach Frisco, but we'll all be dead. Have no fear, repeated the fond father. Gerald possesses all the caution which has been linked to the name Forbish for generations. I had not known that the name Forbish had been linked to anything for any time. The word link always reminds me of sausage. And then my thoughts wandered to Chicago, where persons cursed with the front name of Adolf rid themselves of wives by the vat root. Mrs. Forbish broke in with a pleasant line of thought. Say rather, she remarked firmly, that Gerald inherits the coolness and self-possession of the McGinties, famed through Kildare for these qualities. I had not known that Mrs. Forbush was a McGinty, but now, like a war correspondent, I smelled a battle from afar. A Forbush is a Forbush, said the husband with Scotch finality, and Gerald is one from every point of view. I wish you were not blind, Mr. Glow, so that you might study Gerald's head. It is not necessary to see the face, to glimpse the Forbush in every line of the head's contour. Mr. Forbush rested his case, it seemed, but Mrs. Forbush would not let it go to the jury. If you know anything about phrenology, Peter, she said, and if you were not so blind through the stubbornness as Mr. Gow is through his ailment, you would realize that the dominant qualities of Gerald are inherited from his grandfather on the distaff side. Meaning Mike McGinty, who took the excursion to Tasmania? queried Mr. Forbush with shy brutality. I did not refer to him, said Mrs. Forbush. But now that you bring the matter up, please remember that it took eight British constables, half of them probably Scots, to put the same McGinty on the ship. His blood may be responsible in some degree for Gerald's bump of combativeness, which is so plainly to be seen alongside each ear. Then perhaps, suggested Mr. Forbush, you refer to old Edward Halloran. The same, said Mrs. Forbush. He was a great man, none greater in Kildare. Through me from him have descended to Gerald the inestimable qualities of veneration, congeniality, parental love, friendship, and inhabitiveness. That last one, said I, doesn't mean staying in one place. The hind wheel of the car had just slewed with a tremendous arc. Oh, not in that sense, replied Mrs. Forbush, sweetly, retrieving herself from my lap. In phrenology it means love of country. There's nothing in that phrenology stuff, said Mr. Forbush. It's a general make-up of the head that counts, 
Nature doesn't find it necessary, in making the perfect head, to cover it with knobs like a melee war club. I wished at that moment that I could hoist the bandage long enough to see whether Gerald had such a knobby pole as his sire's remark suggested. But Mrs. Forbush came to the rescue. Gerald's head is perfectly symmetrical, she declared hotly. Of course it is, replied Mr. Forbush. Having all the Forbush qualities, how could it be otherwise? On it is written all the determination and self-sacrifice of the Scots. When a wee Wallace bled. A set of haggis-fed hirelings, said Mrs. Forbush. Sometimes, when I get to thinking about the Scotch, I wish I had married a Mecklenburger. We are just passing the reptile house, remarked Mr. Forbush, with some evident wish to change the subject. Have you ever seen the collection? Yes, said I, and the sight there always fills me with wonder as to the purpose of the Creator. Why, for instance, do such horrible creatures exist as Gila monsters? They make Scotchmen bearable by comparison, sighed Mrs. Forbush. I could see that she had her eye on the ball, and was batting eight hundred. And Forbush saw it too, for when we passed the primate house a minute later, I know the park's geography, even when blindfolded, he did not utter a peep about it. It would have tossed the ball straight into the batter's groove. Reverting to Gerald's head, said Mrs. Forbush, directing her words at me, it shows in every line that he is a young man of action. Mark me, Gerald will do something. And at the very words, Gerald did. He played the old game, using the car for the resistless force, and one of the largest park trees for the immovable object. I know it was a large tree, because I saw it a moment later, when my head, tired of bounding along the sward, had tossed the bandage aside and stopped. I saw Gerald, too, for the first time, but I did not see his wonderful head, because fate had wrapped the steering post and a long blue mudguard around it. That evening I sat in the library of the Forbush home, alone. The elder Forbishes were in their rooms, recovering rapidly and worrying about Gerald. My task was to get bulletins by telephone from the hospital about their noble son. After two orderlies informed me that Gerald had just died, and two more had said that he had just been discharged, I had the luck to get an old friend, Dr. Glob, on the wire. He was one of the surgeons in the hospital. The young man will recover, Glob told me, but it was a close call. You see, he had the wrong kind of head to begin with. Explain, I cried, and he did, but in language that doctors pay for in college, and swear to use all their lives. Perhaps it sounded like this. His skull, we found, was dialectcephalic, to the extent hitherto unrecorded in medical annals and the impact reversed the gazilla. This left the corona saturus waltzing with the stephanion and the nasion telescoping the orbit. A terrible thing to happen to a young man of his intellect, I said. Intellect? cried Glob. Intellect? Is anyone else on the wire? I assured him there was no one. 
Say, he said, old Dr. Kendendium, the cranium specialist, was here when they brought the youth in, and the old villain wanted to croak him and put the head in alcohol so he could study it at his leisure. He says he wanted to find out how a human being born with such a lack of mental machinery could ever live. He said there's a minus mark in every point on the diagram. But we checked his murderous designs, and he consented to operate if he could be permitted to make the head all over again. He's doing it now, and he's a real workman. When our young friend comes out, he'll have a first-class bean on his shoulders, and he'll be lighter by about three pounds of excess adamant. I went upstairs and called to the anxious parents that Gerald was doing nicely and would soon be restored to them. The doctor says, I added, that a man of less powerful intelligence would not have survived. And yet I feel, said Mr. Forbish, that he will never quite be the same again. And indeed, happily, he never was the same. The End of The Back Seat by Frank M. O'Brien